You're listening to the NACOcast, coming to you from Canada's National Arts Centre in Ottawa. My name is Christopher Millard. On this edition of the show, we bring you another in a series of pre-concert talks given at the National Arts Centre. Italy was the theme of our NACO concerts last October, and before our performances of Mendelssohn's Italian Symphony and Nino Rota's Bass Concerto, Toronto star music critic William Littler and the ever-brilliant Paul Lefebvre took our audience on a most enjoyable romp through the sunny musical landscapes of Italy. I hope you enjoy their wide-ranging conversation as much as I did. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Paul Lefebvre. I am the former artistic attaché of the NEC, but they bring me back once in a while. And I'm very happy to be here to welcome Mr. William Littler, the uh, critic emeritus of, uh, for music at the Toronto Star, but also, and I would say more importantly, a pioneer of multidisciplinary criticism in Canada, and even more important, a man whose mind is at the intersection of knowledge, intelligence, and Sensibility. I don't know if sensibility is the same thing that sensibilité in French. It's very positive in French. Okay, you called your talk uh, Capriccio Italien. It's basically because we're having an Italian evening now, even though um, the most famous Italian piece on it was written by a German. Um, it's a, an interesting phenomenon. Some of the best uh, Spanish music was written by French, from Chabrier to Ravel. And uh, the Capriccio Italiano, of course, is by Tchaikovsky. He also wrote Souvenir de Florence, a wonderful chamber piece, which is also in an orchestral version. So um, I'm not sure what authenticity really consists of anymore, but I will say this. Um, if you're talking about Italian music throughout the centuries, one phrase stands out, prima la voce, first the voice. So... What is the, I would say, history? What are the roots of Italian music? Well, it's very difficult in the early centuries to talk about Italian music. Someone even in the 19th century said Italy is basically a geographical expression, not a reality, because uh, it's a mountainous country, there are various regions, and even today, I think, people regard themselves as Milanese, Neapolitans, or whatever, rather than Italians. The locally... Local loyalty is very strong. So um, it's, a very, it's been a very difficult country to find a, a completely uniform style. But one of the things that's happened, I mean, ever since uh, we got Gregorian chant in around the 600, um, th there has been an emphasis on uh, the primacy of vocal music. Mm. In German-speaking countries, if you wanted to make a big reputation uh, through much of the 19th century, you wrote symphonies. Um, if you uh, wanted to make a big reputation in Italy, you wrote operas. And uh, that has really continued to this very day. The composers we're talking about tonight all wrote operas. And, but 
let's you talked about the the Middle Ages, but in the Renaissance, when Constantinople was invaded by the Turks, all those people came to Italy, especially uh, Venice, and they began to sing another way. That's very true, and in fact, uh, even when I refer to Gregorian chant, the, the church music wasn't standardized. In Ravenna, for example, they were very much influenced by the Eastern Orthodox mm -hmm. faith uh, coming from Constantinople. And so there, there was a lot of regional variety in the music. But I think it's still safe to say, um, I mean, you can find it in an Italian restaurant or all, if you go down to the street in Italy, if they're not stealing your purse, they're probably singing to you. So it's, uh, you see, I'm not going to get into the Italian embassy. But anyway, um, <laughs> the, the, the country has always been very concerned uh, about um, making music that was melodious. And here's, if I may, I may, bear in mind, I'm a journalist, so it's my professional responsibility to oversimplify. So basically speaking, um, when you're, the primary element in music is melody, there isn't much you can do with a melody, except repeat it, maybe change the key. Schubert was famous for doing this. He was a modulating machine, I think, and uh, he, would, he would make it sound new by just changing the key and repeating the same notes. Um, so, but there isn't as much you can do with a melody as you can do with harmony. And the Germans understood this very well. Beethoven did not write his music to, in order to tr be triumphantly melodic. He took small cells and constructed big structures with them. You couldn't imagine the late Beethoven quartets written in Italy, and I don't think you could imagine the symphonies written in Italy. Um, it's a different way of approaching music. And, and I think that uh, in the 19th century especially, um, we talk about romanticism. In Italy, it was all in the opera house, and in Germany, it was largely in the, in the concert hall. But uh, composers from Germany or Austria, think of Mozart, they would travel to Italy and become more Italian. So what was the influence that uh, Italian music had through Europe? You really had to go to Italy in those days. Uh, Leopold Mozart dragged his poor son the length of Italy all the way down to Naples trying to get commissions. And in fact, he wrote his first big opera, an opera seria, uh, for the Austrian Archduke of Milan. And he was all of 14 years old. Was but, it Lucio Silla? No, they, uh, well, not, he, he wrote that also in Italy. But uh, they had, the first one was Mitridate Re de Ponto. Oh. And by the way, um, I, one of the reasons I sound even stranger than usual tonight is last night I flew back from 10 days in Poland listening to Chopin. I don't blame Chopin for what happened, but I have acquired um, a Polish cold. So if you'll bear with me. Uh, but the reason I bring it up was not to flaunt my cold, but to point out that if you want to hear the rare Mozart operas, they're in Warsaw. There is a, a Warsaw chamber opera that does all the Mozart operas. Even Salzburg doesn't do all the Mozart operas. They do. So these early operas, that's where I saw Mitridate, that's where I saw Lucio Silla and Il Re Pastore. Um, I must admit that the child Mozart may have been precocious, but he had a very positive uh, affinity for bad books. And so those operas don't really stand up very well as stage pieces, even though they have beautiful music in them. I think we've gone off track. Yes, we were talking about the, 
influence of Italian music on uh, German and Austrian and other European composers. So they would go to Italy. Uh, we will talk soon about Mendelssohn. That's where Mendelssohn met Berlioz, that he hated, but they met nevertheless. Yeah. Well, it's um, it was part it, it's for the co composer. It was the equivalent of the grand tour, and even in the, later in the nineteenth century, the Prix de Rome was something all the French mm. composers wanted to get because they could spend a year or two in Rome and absorb the the Italian culture and make presumably their music more melodic. But in any event, uh, Italy has always been a magnet, and of course, if we're to be perfectly honest. Um, if we hadn't eaten an apple in a garden a very long time ago, we would probably all believe uh, living beneath the Tuscan sun, uh, as a book of a few years ago reminded us. Yes, paradise on earth. Yeah. So the, and the food is wonderful, the government is terrible, but we survive governments. I mean, even in Ottawa. <laughs> But Berlusconi is a tough act to follow. Yes, but we want it to be followed, don't we? <laughs> then, the, then the courts can deal with him. But in fact, he is now responsible for a, a great problem that the Italian opera houses face. Mm -hmm. Because of his financial troubles, there are 14 major opera houses in Italy still. And the subsidy from the government accounts for almost 50% of the entire government spending on the arts. So it's an enormous amount of money that goes into these houses. And he's arguing, and there is a case to be made, that he has to cut back the subsidies on these opera houses so other cultural forms can have uh, a share. And it's a big issue in Italy now because the opera houses have a lot of clout, as you can imagine. Yeah, and uh, people at La Scala or at the San Carlo or at La Fenice uh, are not amused. Oh, no, indeed not. <laughs> indeed not. But, I mean, um, one of the problems with uh, it, the primacy of opera in Italy is that uh, you don't always get the best orchestral playing for the operas. And this has been a historic problem, too. Uh, the most prestigious orchestra in all of Italy is the orchestra of La Scala Milan. And it is a very fine orchestra when it wants to be. Um, but major symphony orchestras, the Italian radio used to have a whole system of radio orchestras across the country. The only one left is in Turin now. This has been a terrible cutback on the orchestral scene. And it's a reflection once again of the priority given opera over instrumental music. Now, if we go back in time uh, to, to the 18th century and late 17th, we, we have a, a large number of composers who followed the example of Corelli, who wrote wonderful string music. And he, in fact, concentrated on instrumental music. But that tradition somehow died out as the opera houses became viewed as the place where people had to have musical careers. And the orchestra was, of course, in a pit, and it didn't have a chance to show itself to its full advantage. And I think that we have the, the results of that even today. We begin the evening with Rossini, who, died, who was born the year Mozart died. And it's the birth of... Um, what Stendhal called not yet romanticism, but romanticism, le romanticisme, as Stendhal called it, um, and a whole new way to think opera and to make opera. And um, of course, he was a genius, he was lazy, and we will hear the overture of Il Signor Boschitno, 
um, who was composed in 1813 at the moment when he was incredibly uh, prolific Il Turco in Italia a few uh, months after, just before we had l'Italiana in Algeria. So who is this Rossini and what does he take of the song of the singing into his orchestral music? Well, um, you're right about calling him lazy. It used to be said of Rossini that, and he loved to compose in bed. And if a piece of his music would fall on the floor, he would write another page rather than step over to pick it up. Um, but he's also famous for saying, uh, when he was asked, what are the three requirements of an operatic career? First voice, second voice, third voice. He knew that the singers were in charge. Now, he also called himself the last of the classicists. He, in fact, understood form, but... It was form rooted in the rhythm of the Italian language. And that's different from the harmonic thinking of the Germans. Uh, when you hear someone like Cecilia Bartoli throw off a Rossini aria, and at enormous speed, but the rhythm is just dead on. And because she knows the Italian language and the natural rhythms of it, Rossini did likewise. Now, he was born to be a musician. His father was a trumpeter and French horn player. His mother was a singer, and they used to travel in the Romagna region from theater to theater. So he absorbed a lot of practical knowledge about how to write. But he did have a classical education. And so the Rome, real romantics in Italian opera began with Bellini, Donizetti, uh, and the, the followers of the Belcanto school. He introduced it, more or less. Mm -hmm. He was, as you would say, the, the pre-romantic romantic. And what, uh, what would you say about Il Signor Bruschino uh, overture? What kind of qualities we, uh, we have of the uh, Rossini music? Well, Rossini was a great um, recycler of his own music, too. Uh, but so was Handel, for that matter. It wasn't really considered any problem to reuse your music from one opera in another opera. And uh, one of the reasons you could write a lot of operas is because you could reuse them. Because, after all, if the opera was done in Milan, you'd then redo it in Naples, and the audience had not heard it. So he, he was able to do that. But he also developed certain techniques that were special to him. One of them is the famous crescendo. Uh, that, that he would get, the, the music would get louder and louder and louder and louder and faster and faster and faster. And it's, it's a device, but it was a signature. And of course, he had the instruments doing different things, tapping the bow against the violin, the wood. Mm -hmm. By the way, it's no accident that um, the best string instruments were made in Italy in the 17th and 18th century. If you want an instrument that sings, get a string instrument. So Stradivari, Amati, Guaranini, all these people who made string instruments um, were in Italy. And I, a, a brief diversion to Texas. Uh, several years ago, I was at a festival in Texas in Round Top, population 77, and um, <laughs> it's basically a summer academy for musicians. And the, uh, the cellist of the Amadeus, the great Amadeus string quartet was down there, and so was his wife and she had a Stradivarius cello. And uh, a professor at the, one of the local universities in College Park had spent many, many years trying to replicate the great Italian instruments. He had logs soaking in brine. He had various techniques for varnish. He was a chemist. And so we went over one day, uh, 
Mrs. Lovett. Martin Lovett was the cellist who in the and the Amadeus. And Susie brought her cello, and we did a comparison. And um, every single person in the room had absolutely no difficulty distinguishing the great Stradivarius from what this Texas professor had presumed to be able to write, to create as a replica. So I don't know what the secret is. There are all kinds of theories about why these, influence, these instruments were so fine. But I think one of the reasons they were given such priority in Italian musical life was they sang. Can we jump a little bit in time and talk about Mr. Mendelssohn's grand tour in Italy? Okay. Okay. What's interesting is that he was born in 1809, like Liszt. One year after, we have the birth of um, Schumann mm -hmm. and the birth of Chopin. In three years, Wagner and uh, Verdi, 1813. But, okay, there's a big thing. Okay, it's the Chopin year. Last year, it was the Liszt year. And again, this year. Oh, yes, it's also the Schumann year. But Mendelssohn was so famous during his lifetime, it went nearly unheard of. Why? It is an interesting story. Um, because his music was very accessible. Um, he too, in a sense like Rossini, was someone who was on the cutting edge of romanticism, but not fully a romantic the way Schumann was, for example. Mm -hmm. He worked very well in classical forms. Um, and he had an extraordinary natural facility. This was one of the great musical geniuses. Um, however, um, he... Uh, he probably was more comfortable with small forms. The same is true of Schumann. Mm -hmm. And it was because of the importance of the symphony, the importance of the oratorio, the opera, that he wrote in these bigger forms as well. We don't listen to St. Paul anymore, except very rarely. And yet in Victorian London, that was a great, great hit. Uh, so times change, fashions change, and poor Mendelssohn was the victim of that. But uh, we know the songs without words, the smaller pieces, they're touched with genius. When you can imagine, he wrote the overture to A Midsummer Night's Dream when he was still a teenager. And the great octet, he was still a teenager. So this was one of the great musical prodigies. And like everybody else in Germany, he understood the value of warmth. So he went to Italy. And... Uh, <laughs> Well, it's, it, does, it doesn't make, you know, it's not surprising after all. Tchaikovsky wanted to escape the Russian winter, as who would not? Um, so uh, that's, they all had to have a touch of Italy, and they became very fascinated by the Italian dances. Um, I have in my kitchen an early 19th century print with a big black tarantula spider on it, and below, in a circle, a group of peasants dancing. They're dancing the tarantella, and that was the dance that you were supposed to dance when bit by a tarantula spider in order to counteract the poison. Now, the pharmaceutical side of me is not convinced by this, <laughs> but nonetheless, they did it. And likewise, uh, the Italian symphony we're going to hear tonight ends with a saltarello, and that's another Italian dance, very fast, very vivacious. Uh, another one, the Rossini, if you've ever heard his song La Danza, that is a tarantella. Um, and and uh, they, they incorporated these Italian movements sometimes into their pieces for the same reason they wanted to in incorporate Italian sun into their lives. It in invigorated things.
And Mendelssohn uh, was certainly not beyond wanting to do that with his music. He was not as serious a German as some of his colleagues. He did have a light side. Remember, he died very young, and he is still full of life. I mean, the, the death of his sister probably broke his, his spirit, and, and he died soon after. But um, the fact of the matter is he, uh, he was one of the more vivacious composers, and I think the Italian experience helped. Because he was barely 20 when he composed that uh, symphony. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And the, the, the thing about it is that uh, he seemed to capture the spirit of Italy in a remarkable way for somebody who spent relatively little time there. But I think he fell in love with uh, the Italian side of things, and um, he didn't have to stay long enough to listen to their orchestras. <laughs> <laughs> But he was the least Italian man of um, serious of thinking that all the other composers were more or less fakes. He was the only honest one. Uh, said horrendous thing about Berlioz that uh, his orchestration was so filthy that when holding, after holding a Berlioz score, you must wash your hands. Well, Berlioz <laughs> was a particular problem, and as, as we both noticed, he, he failed to take out Italian citizenship. Um, and he was, uh, he was experimental in a way Mendelssohn never was. Um, Mendelssohn accepted the harmonic language of his time, Berlioz expanded it, and he pushed the instruments to their expressive limits, which is something Mendelssohn had no desire to do. He essentially accepted the terms of his time just as Mozart did. The thing was, he used them with greater originality than his colleagues. Let's jump again in time with Mr. Nino Rota. Nino Rota. Okay, we know Nino Rota because he composed most of the scores of the great uh, Federico Fellini movies. 30 years he worked with Fellini. So when we think about something being Fellinian, uh, we have always the music of Nino Rota mm -hmm. in, uh, in the mind. But he was also a composer, uh, he was a, a teacher, but also a composer of non-music uh, um, score music. Oh yes, indeed. In fact, he wrote an oratorio at the age of 11. He also wrote symphonies that nobody plays anymore. Except Yannick Nézé-Séguin, who recorded uh, his second and third symphony. Oh, really? Yeah. I haven't heard that recording. Yes, by Anelecta with the Montreal uh, Orchestre Métropolitaine Montréal. You can buy it everywhere, I'm sure. <laughs> the voice of Montreal. <laughs> Well, uh, that, that sounds interesting, because uh, those, those symphonies are almost never played. His concerto for strings is almost never played. It's basically the film music. In fact, he even wrote the music for that uh, Franco Zeffirelli version of uh, Shakespeare's The Taming of the Shrew, starring those great Shakespearean actors, Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. Um, so, uh, Both? Both great Shakespearean actors? Okay, I trust you. <laughs> This is, is known in English as irony. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> We thick French don't get that. <laughs> anyway, no, uh, uh, but it's not surprising that he had such a success in films because if you've got a, a, a memorable tune that you can weave through a film, it binds it together. The one person who did not get an Academy Award for Gone with the Wind, was Max Steiner, who wrote the film score. And I would argue that that music was as important as any other factor in making Gone with the Wind a success. The American composer Aaron Copland went to Hollywood to score The Red Pony, a very lovely little film. 
And he wrote about it later in saying that film music is like a small candle held under the screen to warm it. A nice image, but you can't have a big ego if you're a film composer. You have to be a collaborative worker. And Rota and Fellini just clicked, and they did the right thing, just as Bernard Herrmann and, and uh, Hitchcock. Hugh, Hitchcock clicked for so many years. They, they, they had the right uh, sensibility to work with each other. Uh, and unfortunately, as with all composers who become successful in films, it made it difficult for their concert music to be taken seriously. Miklos Roja, when he came to Hollywood, had the same thing happen to him. Corn, Corn gold, gold, you know. And, and uh, w when they went back to concert music, it, they had a difficult time establishing themselves. People would say, oh, they're film composers. Well, Rota was a film composer, undeniably, but he was a very craft-conscious and very inspired film composer, I would argue. And so, despite the fact that I'm not a particular fan of uh, Burton and, and uh, Elizabeth Taylor, once again, his music helped. The music of Rota seems always rooted in popular, even of village bands, fanfare, as yeah. we call them in, in French. And each voice, each instrument in his music, you can always hear. It's very transparent music. But you're the one who knows about music. How would you describe what makes this music so interesting? It's well, so recognizable. Yes, it is. He has a signature, which is a very important thing for a composer to have. On the other hand, there used to be a saying in Hollywood, if you can remember the music, it wasn't any good. Because <laughs> it is supposed to be unobtrusive. It is supposed to be linking things together. Uh, and when you consider all these individual frames of film, um, you need something binding them. And the music often does that. However, I don't agree with the Hollywood maxim. That was usually a maxim by the old film moguls who didn't know their music anyway. Uh, I think the music is a very strong component of a, of a good film. Uh, the story is told, by the way, by the Alfred Hitchcock once was when he was making the film Lifeboat. Uh, it basically took place in a lifeboat out in the middle of the ocean, and he, he said to Bernard Herrmann, well, I'm not sure we should have any music for this film. After all, uh, where would the orchestra be out in the middle of the ocean? And Herman reportedly replied, right behind the camera. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I mean, they, they had their own egos and they had their own skills too. And, and I think that, uh, well, now, now, bear in mind what we're listening to is a piece written for double bass. Now, there are those of us who feel that the double bass is not the triumph of instrumental music. The former principal double bass of the Toronto Symphony Orchestra used to refer to his instrument as his doghouse. Um, it is a very large, unwieldy instrument, and because it's the foundation of the strings, the strings of the double bass are very thick, and you can't play fast on them. It's basically there to give you the, the bottom. Now, the trouble with somebody like Joel Corrington is that he can play the instrument fast, and it's very hard for the rest of us at critics to make fun of him as much as we would normally do. So he, he creates a real problem for him. Before him, Gary Carr also made a career as a soloist on the double bass, a very unlikely thing to happen. So um, most of the big pieces for double bass were, surprise, surprise, written by double bass players. The Bottizzini. Uh, Exactly. Uh, uh, Bottasini and Dragonetti are always the ones that are cited. Dragonetti um, uh, worked for something like 52 years in the orchestras of London. 
Haydn was a personal friend, and Be Beethoven learned how to score for double bass by him, from him. Botticini had a remarkable career, not only writing these strange pieces, but he also conducted the first performance of Aida at the Cairo Opera. So the, these were men who had many parts, but they had to because a career for a double bass was a very limited thing. Um, so uh, the problem faced by people like uh, our soloist tonight, Joel Corrington has to choose from among a very limited repertoire of pieces. Now, I've never heard a note of the Nino Rota piece, and it may be that after tonight we will feel that that was appropriate. However, we don't know. It could turn out to be a wonderful piece, and played by Joel Quarrington, it at least has a chance. But it is a difficult instrument. Uh, in, in the 20th century, probably the best-known double bass player was Serge Kuzovitsky, who became conductor of the Boston Symphony. And uh, he wrote a double bass concerto, well, Scholars now say that probably Reinhold Glier wrote most of it, but anyway, he was a double bass virtuoso, but the career was limited, so he went into conducting and became one of the most popular conductors of his day, certainly in Boston. But regarding the um, Divertimento by Nino Rota, I spoke to um, some musicians of the orchestra, and oh, it's going to be a crowd pleaser, so at least... You know why, Igor, of course. It's written melodically, you know. Uh, the, uh, I, don't, I don't expect Rota is going to deny his basic character as a composer in this piece. But in fact, um, it's, it's one note at a time, largely, except in chordal passages. So you've got to have melodies, and uh, that's, oh, that's probably what he's going to give us. So it'll, be, it'll probably be friendly music. Now, I, I, once having said this, I am brought back... Um, to an experience I had in Augsburg, Germany a few years ago when I heard an opera by Salieri, Mozart's great competitor in Vienna, in fact, the successful composer, Axur Re Dormus, Axur, King of Ormus. Um, and I sat through this entire opera, enjoying it, and walked out of the opera house and couldn't remember a note. The reason is, it was very pretty in the same way. It was predictable. His patterns always repeated themselves. If he did it this way, you know he's going to do it that way again. And, and so when you el eliminate the unexpected from music, you get boredom. And the thing about Mozart was he worked within the traditional forms, but he surprised us all the time. He went to different keys. He modulated different, he gave us surprising harmonies. And this, this therein lay his genius. Now, um, that's the problem I had with, with uh, Salieri. But if you remember, there was a famous scene in the film version of Amadeus, Carl Foreman's, not Carl Foreman's, uh, Milos, Milos Foreman's, Foreman's film. That would be the guns of Navarone, I was thinking. Anyway, um, Milos Foreman's uh, film version of Amadeus is a wonderful scene in which the Emperor Joseph II is trying to found a, a German opera. And uh, all the Italians at the court opera, the director, the senior composer, and so on, they were aghast at the idea that uh, an opera would be performed in a barbaric language such as German, because opera meant Italian. I mean, when even Handel, a German, came to London, his operas were in Italian. It was recognized as the operatic language. And uh, it was a, a funny thing that... Uh, Eventually, the, the emperor decided, okay, we'll, we'll have it in German. 
and, and we got the abduction from the seraglio as a result. Uh, a wonderful piece, but uh, a surprising piece because um, it was contrary to the tradition in those days. The Italians were still in charge. And um, after the, they launched their careers in Italy, they spread to the various courts of Europe and their influence was very powerful. In fact, Maria de Medici brought to the French court ballet. Yes, and also ice cream. <laughs> I don't know quite how to describe him, but he's one of a kind. Anyway, okay. 1572. <laughs> if only she had brought a refrigerator at the same time. <laughs> but it was not invented yet. Ah, problems. We have time for one question. Okay. Have, has any, anybody got the definitive question <laughs> on Italian music and why it is what it is? That'll scare them. Yeah. Why don't you answer that? <laughs> I know you. <laughs> the ball got back over the net. I, I think it, it all goes back to that same prima la voce and the fact that the voice by its nature wants to sing melody. Uh, and I think that uh, they've never lost that priority right up into the present. If you listen to the music of Luciano Berrio, for example, uh, he had a soprano wife, an American singer called Kathy Berberian, who could sing almost anything. He studied he, linguistics. He studied making the, language, uh, the sounds of the language also the sounds of music. And it was an extraordinary achievement. But once again, he was extending vocal techniques. And his most interesting music, I would argue, uh, like Symphonia and so on, these are pieces uh, that are still in the vocal tradition. He's just taken them further. And, and I think that's what's happening uh, today in Italy. Um, it's not, and never has been, a country most famous for the avant-garde. I mean, there have been the futurists and different movements over the years, but by and large, um, they've respected their traditions, their roots, and I think that's the strength of their musical culture. Very good answer. <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you, Dr. Littler. Now we'll have a great concert, everybody. Thank you for being here. That's all for this edition of the NACOcast. Send us your comments and questions. You can reach us by sending an email to nacocast at gmail.com. We always look forward to hearing from you. Don't forget, you can subscribe to this and other NAC podcasts by visiting nacpodcasts.ca, where you'll find our past episodes, subscription links, and instructions on how to subscribe. You can also easily find this podcast as a free subscription in the podcast section of the iTunes Music Store. Just search on NACOcast. So until next time, this is Christopher Millard for the new media team here at the National Arts Centre in Ottawa. Ottawa.